Black to Canada is sponsored by OESeducation.org. OES Education is committed to unraveling the principles, processes, and practices that serve as the bedrock of enduring individual and corporate greatness. The objective of OES Education is to help people discover the power and energy that is within them and use it towards impacting and influencing their world. Through teaching, training, and research, OES Education has helped many individuals and institutions identify their core competencies and amplify their unique gifts and potential. OESeducation.org Welcome to the Black to Canada podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Oyenaren. I am so excited to have a very special guest with me today. I was introduced to Sherry back in 2017 while working on a Black History exhibit for the Ontario Black History Society titled Black History is Canadian History, Continuing the Conversation. Her deep knowledge and passion for the rich Black history in British Columbia came through so much during our many phone calls and emails. Welcome Sherry Edmonds-Flett to the Black to Canada podcast. Uh, thank you very much. I would first like to acknowledge that, that I'm on the unceded ancestral and shared lands for the Stolo people. And the city of Mission is on the Kwantlen, Lakamal, Matsqui, and Scowlitz territories. And I'd also like to acknowledge the ancestors that came here in 1858 um, mm -hmm. to Vancouver Island. Now, I just want to take some time to read Sherry's extensive bio. Sherry Edmonds Flett was born and raised in the prison capital of Canada, Kingston, Ontario. She graduated from Queen's University in 1982 with a bachelor's honors in sociology. She wrote her honors thesis under the direction of Hans Moore of the Law Reform Commission. A year later, Sherry graduated with a Bachelor of Education in English and Music from Queen's University. Her graduate degrees include a Master's in African Area Studies from the University of California, Los Angeles in 1988, and Doctoral Candidate Status in History from Simon Fraser University. Sherry is a founding member of the Black Canadian Studies Association and a lifetime member of the Association of Black Women Historians. A published writer, her work includes a chapter in Telling Tales, Women in Western Canadian History from UBC Press that was released in the fall of 2000. Three entries in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography released by the University of Toronto Press in 2005 and an article in Truth that was released in 2010. Sherry met and married her husband, Glenn Flett. While he was in prison, she taught adult basic education in provincial prisons in BC for seven years before becoming the executive director of the nonprofit Link Society, which she co-founded with Glenn. Sherry lives in Mission, British Columbia. Welcome again, Sherry, and thank you so much for being here with me. Um, you know, if you could tell us 
First, just about your work and gathering and collecting and documenting the stories and histories of Black people in British Columbia. Okay, what I'd like to first start out with is how I got into doing African Canadian history, period. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, as, as, as I said, I was born in Kingston, Ontario. I grew up in a place just outside of um, Kingston called Collins Bay. And I went to Collins Bay Public School. So when I was in grade eight, it was an all white class. Mm -hmm. And my teacher, Mrs. Barbara Parks, one day in class, she was also the English teacher, said that any black person of any worth had to have white blood in them. So mm -hmm. I hopped up. I said, I disagree. Mm -hmm. I, at the time I had read the biography of Martin Luther King by his wife, Credit Scott King. And I said, he is a black man or was a black man because he was assassinated by that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she kicked me out of school and I walked mm -hmm. home. So as I was walking home, creator said to me that I was gonna become an African Canadian historian. And so I'm 63 now. So it's like 50 years later and that's what I am. I just like, I listen to what spirit tells me mm -hmm. and, and that's what spirit told me I was gonna do. Cause I was surely pissed with mm -hmm. what she said. And again, at that point in time, I did not know any persons of African descent. I just mm -hmm. knew what she said was wrong. So there. So then what I did was for my master's degree, like I wanted to study about, as I said, people of Af African Canadians, people of African descent in Canada. Mm -hmm. But at the time I was uh, going to university in the early eighties, there was um, no places that I could go to study. So mm -hmm. I went to UCLA. My my MA thesis at UCLA is on the history of slavery in the Kingston and Bay of Quinty region. Mm. And then Glenn transferred from Millhaven. He was in prison in Millhaven Institution, came out to British Columbia because that's where he's from. Mm -hmm. And he was in William Head, and that's where we got married. And I I had decided that I wanted to do my I I applied to go to SFU. First I went to UBC and then to SFU and they said to me, well, there's not that many black people in, in British Columbia. And I said, oh no, there is, there has <laughs> been. And so I was showing them my, what I had found. And so then Simon Fraser accepted me. Okay. And so, so why it was an issue, I think for the universities first to accept me was the fact that, um, there wasn't any sort of mother load of information about people of African descent in, mm -hmm. in British Columbia. As well, to, to white people who are studying uh, that, you know, like in terms of white privilege and white supremacy, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's people of African descent are sort of invisible to them, I think, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, so, and so, like I said, there wasn't any mother load of information. So what I did, I, I um, and the, the community was small, but up until 1900, uh, the African Canadian community in, in British Columbia was about the same size as the Chinese Canadian community. Mm. So, um, so first, what I had to do was I had to check the, the the secondary sources. So the only secondary sources at that point in time were James Pilton's UBC master's thesis and BA thesis, and then. There was Crawford Gillian's Go Do Some Great Thing. And mm. then I, uh, I, what I did from there is I started, 
like in Pilton's MA thesis, he had a, uh, I was, because my thesis is on the history of African Canadian women in British Columbia from mm -hmm. 1858 to 1938. There mm -hmm. was an undocumented list of, of uh, black British Columbians. And however, the only few married women noted on this list were identified only by their husband's surname. And there was only one single woman listed. So what I had to do was I had to reconstruct community life in British Columbia in the 19th century. So mm. I had to, as and and why it was difficult in part two was the first uh, a federal sentence, the census was uh, 1881. So I had to work backwards. I utilized Pilton's okay. list as well as the 1881 census, the 1891 census, which mm -hmm. denote ethnicity, family genealogies created. I also had uh, details I got from church, cemetery, court records, along with will and probate mm -hmm. files, birth, marriage, and death certificates, church, cemetery, court records, as I said, and then newspapers, coroners, inquest, city directories, oral histories. Mm -hmm. And so I created uh, 12 volumes of family wow. genealogy. Wow. And, and what I also want to make sure for for people to know is that my information is first goes out to the community mm -hmm. it's not it's not for me to extract information mm -hmm. about the african canadian community in bc for my special purpose it's sort of like mm -hmm. i get i get choked because that's the kind of stuff that they do about mm -hmm. us in prison so like they did a thing once about uh, uh relationships in prison and 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 they the guy that did it this psychologist had this certain way of of thinking about us and so my information that i get first goes to the families mm -hmm. first goes to people of the community because i don't want to have happen what happened to me when i stood up in mrs parks's class and mm -hmm. and i had to use an american example because i didn't know any canadian examples when i was 13 mm -hmm. and i wanted so that there's going to be no excuse for people to say that they didn't know there were people of African descent here. Yeah. I want it to be a no excuse that some woman or man is going to say, oh, well, there isn't, and no, they didn't do this or that. I want people to have the information. And I also want the information to be detailed because I've participated in some, some uh, conferences on, or seminars on African Canadian mm -hmm. history in British Columbia. And what they've been is basically uh, about uh, racism. And that's like defining the, again, defining the community in opposition to whites. And that's mm -hmm. not what the thing is. I want to know about the community. I yeah. don't like, you know, Surrey needs some little context about the racism that people were experiencing, but that isn't the friggin' community, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and so that, yeah. and so that's why I needed to go drill down and get the information. So I've been going all across Canada. I've mm -hmm. gone down to the states, down through you know Washington D.C., mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Washington State, Oregon State, California. Uh, just uh, there's stuff that I've gotten from Florida, stuff of Puerto Rico, uh, yeah. just. You know, because I think it's really important that people have, um, like, again, that we drill down and we have a really good sense of what, as much as we can, mm -hmm. of the community. Exactly. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, you, you raised some good points, Sherry, and so much, um, I, I really liked how you, you document and you know your main purpose is that this information is for the community, right? I know for me, and I know for probably a lot of Canadians, we don't really know um, about Black history, especially, or if we do know about Black history, it's more in you know the provinces of Ontario, where I am, or maybe Quebec, or definitely Nova Scotia, but you don't really think about Black people being in, you know, British Columbia or Alberta or the Northwest Territories. So it's amazing that you're doing this and you've drilled down and you've dedicated, you know, your life work to sharing these stories. So how, how far back does Black history in BC date back to? And if you could tell us about some of the founding families and individuals, and then what was life like for them uh, during this time? Okay, so they came in the first people of African descent that arrived in British Columbia came to Vancouver Island in April of 1858. Okay. So what they had done originally was that they had come from the East Coast to and all, all the way down the Eastern seaboard as far down to Florida and that. And then they came to California because mm. of the California gold rush in 1848. Okay. So from there, um, they were living and participating in the community, in the economy there, but there was poll tax, they weren't allowed to vote, mm -hmm. their, their schools are getting segregated. And so they had a meeting at the uh, African Methodist Episcopalian Church in, in uh, San Francisco, where a lot of people lived and uh, people of African descent in California, mm -hmm. uh, because they met and they decided, well, we need to go someplace else. Mm -hmm. So they decided they were going to, they were thinking about going to Mexico or then they thought about going to um, Vancouver Island. So at the time, there, uh, our chief factor and then the first governor of, of uh, Vancouver Island slash British Columbia was um, James Douglas. Now, there's a really, really, really great book by Adele Perry on, on uh, James Douglas, who, um, who's, who's from Guyana. Okay. And, and so he, he was mixed, white, Scottish, and, and uh, um, of African descent. And so mm -hmm. the lore is, is that he encouraged them to come. And so then they came. So they came on a ship that was called the Commodore. They arrived in eight, on April the 25th, 1858. Um, ironically, or sadly, I should say, on July the 30th, 1865, the Commodore, which was then um, named later the brother Jonathan, sank and like 200 people, only 19 people survived. And, that, and uh, they had uh, hit a rock at Crest, Crescent City, California. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, so they came in 1858, April of 1858. Um, upon arrival, they, uh, they rented this large room from a carpenter. They were praying and worshiping God. And, mm -hmm. and so the local Ang Anglican minister, Bishop Cridge, later Bishop Cridge said, why did they leave San Francisco to come to Victoria and people told them about the injustice they'd labored under and that they were much encouraged by the privileges that they would enjoy on Vancouver Island. So mm. in one of the few 
letter surviving from that period was written by a black woman named Nancy Davis Lester. And she gave her reasons for coming to Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned to her friend, abolitionist William Still, that, um, that the group who had left at the end of April, 1858, had received a hospitable reception from Governor Douglas. And she told him, quote, it seems to be a providential provision for us who are so Ooh. oppressed that ere long we may find a home for our children in the right place. She says, some newspapers in California were, quote, taunting the colored people, end of quote, who were leaving to come to Vancouver Island. However, Nancy Lester, Mrs. Lester said, our enemies are never willing that we should immigrate to a place where we would benefit. Ooh. So now I'm not sure how many African, like, Black men or women migrate to Vancouver Island during their, those early years. And like I said, for women, the lack of visibility was due in part to their classification as uh, only as wives, mothers, or daughters. Mm -hmm. But they were present in all phases of settlement from the initial party of 65. So mm -hmm. as Bishop Cridge said, some men brought their wives and children with them from California, while others came ahead. Some mm -hmm. hoped to earn enough money in the gold mines to buy family members. Some women came as domestic servants. Um, so it was uh, a bunch of different things. And so I'd say that I found, uh, when I was doing my thesis, I've identified 212 wow. women that came between 1858 and 1868. They oh, came wow. from California, uh, Oregon, mm -hmm. Washington, uh, like, yeah, California and Oregon. And then we also had uh, people that came, uh, came across Canada um, from Ontario. Oh, okay. So, so that was uh, pretty cool. So um, did you want, I could tell you about uh, some of the people. Yeah, tell me about some people or individuals and families that stand out to you and, you know, what life was like for them at that time. I, I remember when we were doing the exhibit and you shared some of your research, I was just so amazed and fascinated about the different families and how they live. So maybe, yeah, give us like your top like families or individuals and how they lived um, in British Columbia at the time. Okay. Um, one was, uh, oh, did I lose you? No, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I just, the picture just flicked over. So you can still hear me, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, for one person who I really um, liked was Julia Hernandez Travis. So she was the only woman that I knew that owned property in her own right prior to marriage. Oh, wow. so, oh, okay. so, so in 1853, she left Jacksonville, Florida with her sister Mary to join other family members who'd arrived in California the year before. So according to Delilah Beasley in the Negro Trailblazers of California, which was published in 1919, quote, when the Fraser River gold excitement reached California, the sisters decided to go to British Columbia and cook at a, a wage of $100 a week. So they cooked in, during the gold rush. And mm. Julia Hernandez, as I said, must have prospered because she was listed in the government gazette as owning a portion of five acres on Pioneer Street in Victoria. And so she'd married a man named Augustus Travis on May the 10th, 1860. 
-hmm. died sometime before 1881 since the census for that year listed her as a 46-year-old widow. Although she was continually employed as a cook and laundress, jobs of low-paying status, she was still a woman, an influential woman within the Black community, witnessing mm -hmm. wills as Julia Travis property owner. So I thought she was pretty cool. And she is interned in a plot near Bishop Critch. Okay. And so I, I had, I had in, uh, enjoyed her. And then, um, then the, another person, uh, I miss another, another person was the, um, was again, I think we've talked about it, it was Sylvia Stark who came with her, her parents, the Estes and her husband, um, uh, Lewis Stark. And mm -hmm. I, I think we, we did, did a, I think she was one of the people that I, uh, yeah, uh, I remember you included her in our, yeah. um, your research for the exhibit. Yeah. And so I thought that she was, she was really interesting. And then she was the only person that I knew that was identified as living in slavery, had been a slave, mm. like the only person I could say her and her mother. And so, um, as I said, she, she was the daughter of Hannah and her hu husband, Howard Estes. They were, she was born in Clay County, Missouri in, on January the 16th, 1840. Her three siblings were owned by one man, her father by another, and her father went to California to earn the money to buy the family's freedom. And two years later, after the family was freed, they traveled to by covered wagon to California in 1851. Mm. So Sylvia met her husband, Lewis, uh, and married him in Placerville, California on S September the 24th, 1855. And now her ma didn't want her to marry Lewis Stark. She did. Mm but she was wearing a wedding gown. She made herself of white brocaded satin and white satin slippers. She was married for three weeks and she wanted to leave her husband with his sullen and unpredictable moods, but he persuaded her to stay. Although they came from different backgrounds, the racism they both experienced made Sylvia decide to stay in the relationship. Mm. So two children were born prior to the family's 1860 migration to Vancouver Island. And then five more were born when the Stark settled on, San, on Salt Spring Island. Mm. And uh, there was on Salt Spring Island, um, the African-American population that Ruth Sanwell talked about in her book, Contesting Rural Space. She said that the African-American or, or as I refer to African-Canadian population on Salt Spring Island was significant. They made up 17 out of 95 pre land preemptors or just mm. under a fifth of preemptors residing on their land before 1868. And so, so, so she was, Sylvia was a, a farmer with, with her husband. Now, another family that was quite well known was uh, a man named Mifflin Gibbs and his wife, okay. Maria Gibbs. Mm -hmm. And I did a dictionary Canadian biography entry on him. And he, he left he uh, he worked with Frederick Douglass and oh, he wow. and he at the end of the he, he um, toured with them um, on a lecture tour of Western New York State in 1849 and at the end mm -hmm. of the tour he left for the California gold fields he mm -hmm. arrived in San Francisco in September of 1850 
and by working as a carpenter and boot black, accumulated savings, which enabled him to join a clothing business. So a year later, he became a partner in the firm of Lester and Gibbs. So that's Peter Lester. That's uh, Nancy Lester's husband. Okay. And and so they, uh, he helped to, Mr. Gibbs helped to found and publish the Mirror of the Times in San Francisco, which Mm -hmm. advocated equal rights for all. And in 1857, he and his partner, Peter Lester, had refused to pay the poll tax if they weren't allowed to vote. Um, And like I said, they decided to immigrate. Uh, In 1859, he returned to this, he came to to Victoria in 1858. Mm -hmm. He, um, in 1859, he returned briefly to the US and married Marie Alexander. And they were in Victoria the next year and lived in a house in Victoria, where all five of the children were born. Now, what's really interesting mm-hmm. is his two of his daughters, um, Ida. Ida worked with W. Dubois. Oh, okay. Which is really cool. You can, and then and then uh, uh, Ida's sister uh, Harriet mm-hmm. at the Washington D.C. Conservatory of Music. Now, oh, wow, Mr. and Mrs. Um, Gibbs uh, broke up and they weren't living together when they returned to the United States, I think it was mm. 1870, but, and so Maria lived basically with their daughters in Washington. Mr. Gibbs lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. He became the U.S. Council for Madagascar. Uh, Ida's husband after that became the Council for Madagascar, but you can, uh, there's some really it's really neat to see how people that were born born in British Columbia were part of what they referred to as the talented 10. Mm. You know, so that I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, as much as, what was interesting too about life in, in um, Vancouver Island for the first settlers of African descent is they decided that they didn't want to have um, uh, separate institutions. So they didn't have a separate mm. church. They okay. didn't have separate, uh, didn't, not separate church, not separate schools. They mm. wanted to be fully integrated. Now, okay. we didn't end up having an African Methodist Episcopalian church until um, till the center of the population basically went from Vancouver Island and Salt Spring Island to about 1900 and beyond, like about 1911, mm-hmm. they had the African Methodist Episcopalian Church in what you were referring to as Hogan's Alley, yeah, or East Vancouver. Yes. And yes. so, but there was, even though the initial settlers wanted to ha- wanted to integrate within the community, mm-hmm. um, and even though people like Julia Travis and Mifflin Gibbs had you know, respect within the community, like mm-hmm. Mifflin Gibbs was the, um, was uh, a, a member went to when BC was deciding whether or not it wanted to be part of confederation. He mm-hmm. went as one of the, one of the um, uh, uh, delegates to that. And okay. so, but there was systemic racism existing in Victoria and it was overt during the early years of settlement due in part to an influx of white Americans from California. Mm. And the editor of the African American Pacific Appeal stated that there was as much prejudice and nearly as much isolation in Victoria as in San Francisco. 
Wow. A factious group of white Americans attempted to segregate schools and churches, but failed. Initially, a vocal minority of Bishop Cridges or Reverend Cridges church congregation complained about, quote, per perspiring Ethiopians sitting next mm. to them in pews and advocated for a separate section for black people in the church. This did not occur due to the support of Reverend Cridge and Bishop Hill. And George Hills, the first Church of England Bishop in British Columbia was very sympathetic to African Canadians within the diocese. Mm. In his diary, he um, recorded the visit of Mifflin Gibbs and Mr. Francis, that's Abner Francis. Join me next time as we listen to part two in conversation with Sherry Edmonds Flett. Overcomers. Might I add, it is in our DNA to overcome. Our melanin tells a story of matchless beauty and perseverance. Listen as we journey. See, our skin has always been more than what meets your eye. It's deeper than that. Like treasure immersed in the depth of the sea, buried underneath, hidden has never lost its value. See, the pressure of our oppressors could never cancel a people chosen to exist. We always rise above, finding our way to the surface where you can't miss our glow when the sun hits. Our melanin tells a story of long-suffering partnered with a passion to see change, pressed down, stifled and silenced. Still, we have found our voice, joined together distinctively with the hand of God. Hear our outcry of hope as we journey black to Canada.